according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me, if you would, in Hebrews chapter 10. We need to do uh, a couple of things here this morning. So we're going to be simultaneously in Hebrews 10, and we're going to be back in Psalm 40. So I'm um, not sure how we're going to do that other than flipping back and forth in a paper Bible or tapping glass if you're using a, a Bible app on your device. But we'll start with Hebrews 10. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. We have verses 5, 6, and 7 here in Hebrews 10. It's a quotation from Psalm 40, verses 7 and 8. There is a change from Psalm 40, and so we'll have to deal with that here this morning. Before we begin, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer and call upon our Father and His faithfulness to open our eyes to truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day and the blessings that we have to assemble together to receive instruction. We thank you, Father, for the priesthood access that we have by faith in Jesus Christ. That, Father, we all stand within the veil. We all stand before your presence. We have uh, the tremendous blessings of the, of the church age that have been poured forth upon us richly. And Father, we thank you for the book of Hebrews that opens up these powerful truths that open up our eyes to see these things for what they are. I pray we would understand them, that we would apply them, that we would live them out day by day. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we come to this marvelous statement here, when he comes into the world, a declaration that he makes. And I don't believe this was in the manger. I don't believe this was the baby Jesus saying these things. There's some fanciful apocryphal texts that have the baby Jesus saying things from the, from the cradle. Uh, but this is, I believe, a statement that he made from heaven itself, that when he went forth from his Father's presence in the kenosis application, when Jesus Christ went forward and entered into the womb of the Virgin Mary, that he uttered this upon his departure from heaven itself. And he was quoting scripture from Psalm 40. Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Uh, Jesus is unique among all the humans that have ever lived in the sense that his soul predated his body, that his humanity, his existence predated his physical birth. For you and for me, that's not the case. For any other human that ever lived, that's not the case. It's a wicked doctrine, uh, Eastern mysticism and, and Hinduism and so forth, that pre-existence of souls is not biblical. Only for Jesus does he have a human nature prior to his entrance into the virgin's womb. And so when the, when the father impregnated the virgin and the son entered into her womb in the kenosis of Jesus Christ, this is what we're dealing with. And so he, when he comes into the world, he says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired. He is coming as the fulfillment of what all of those shadows were pointing to. Remember, animal ritual was shadows pointing forward. And even in the shadows, there was the recognition that the offerings in and of themselves were not effective. They could make nobody perfect in conscience. 
in those shadows there's a reminder of sins year by year. They never take away sin as Jesus does when he has his victory on the cross. All right, so when Jesus comes into the world, he really is fulfilling much of the scripture. He's fulfilling by direct quotation and he's fulfilling by indirect allusion and citation a number of Old Testament prophets, such as Samuel, such as David. I think the words of Samuel in 1 Samuel 15 uh, are, are really easy to, to observe. 1 Samuel 15, 22. And in this, uh, we looked at this, I won't spend time on this because last week we looked at this, Saul, King Saul uh, acted like he was very obedient when in fact he was disobeying. And, uh, and this is what the Lord says here. So uh, when Saul's whining about it and, and saying in verse 20, I did obey the voice of the Lord, um, Samuel says, no, you didn't. And uh, in verse 22, Samuel said, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices? They were supposed to kill the Amalekites. They were supposed to kill all the animals, everything that, that breathes. They weren't supposed to leave anything alive. They weren't supposed to plunder. And yet uh, they get caught with these living animals. As Saul says, why do I hear, Samuel says, why do I hear the bleeding of sheep if, uh, if you did obey? And then so he tr- starts to make more excuses. Well, we did obey. We just saved these animals so we could make sacrifices. And that's not an answer either because obedience is better than sacrifice. And uh, this is what it says. So has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. And so this is uh, the prophetic word here through Samuel. And then David expresses this. I'm going to take Psalm 51 first. And then I'll back up to Psalm 40. In Psalm 51, this is his confession. And he's, he's been caught now. Nine months of uh, carnality while uh, Bathsheba was pregnant. And then after the birth of the child is when the prophet Nathan comes and exposes David's sin. And then David repents and he confesses and we get Psalm 51 in our Bibles. And, uh, and it's interesting when he gets to this because the, the, the sin had been weighing on him even while he remained in carnality. But he says, um, verse 16, for you do not delight in sacrifice. See, let me back up a little bit, I guess. Because um, he's, he's so uh, lost in this darkness. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. We don't have to worry about that in the church age, but that was a very real danger for an Old Testament uh, believer. Very few of them even had the Holy Spirit to start with. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. And then I love the teaching opportunity that presents. He says, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. If you're a believer that's had a time of darkness in your past and, and the Lord brought you through that, guess what? You have a fertile ground. You've got great opportunities to minister in that very realm. You can testify to the faithfulness of God and you can, you can be a powerful tool to reach others that are in that field of darkness you used to, uh, you used to inhabit. Deliver me from my blood guiltness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. 
O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. So he's, he's ready to put behind him what's behind him and he's ready to reach forward. But he's got this, how's he going to get cleansed? How's he going to get forgiven? He says, for you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offerings. The fact is Leviticus cannot help David, uh, David at this point. There is nothing Levitical that's going to help him. There's no offering for his adultery, for his murder. The punishment under law is death. There is, there is no sacrifice. There's no animal ritual that's going, to, that's going to provide for him in these circumstances. But he knows there's something bigger than these sacrifices. That shadow doctrine is teaching a reality of what's coming. A Savior is on the way. So he says, you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And so he comes completely repentant before God the Father and and lays himself out there uh, for the Father's gracious forgiveness. And I like that. All right, back to Psalm 40 then. So we recognize animal ritual has its limitations. It only does so much. And what it does is it points forward to a coming reality. The actual cleansing it provides is simply ceremonial cleansing. The actual uh, forgiveness that's supplied is ceremonial forgiveness, not the substance, not the reality. All right, so Psalm 40. I'll back up to verse 4. Again, it's a Davidic psalm. How blessed is the man who has made the Lord his trust and has not turned to the proud nor to those who lapse into falsehood. So here's a believer. David's writing as a believer and one that's walking by faith. He's saved and he's walking that way. He's walking by faith according to the wisdom of God. Many, O Lord, my God, are the wonders which you have done and your thoughts toward us. There is none to compare with you. If I would declare and speak of them, they would be too numerous to count. There are false gods out there. There's alternatives to walking by faith. And David says he wants none of that. He wants no part of that. There's liars and he doesn't want to even listen to them. It's like what Peter told the Lord. He said, where would we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. All the other disciples were bailing left and right, but the 12 stayed with him and Peter had that, that great testimony. But then notice what the prophecy says here in Psalm 40 and verse 6. Sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, behold, I come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will. O my God, your law is within my heart. All right, so here's the prophecy as given in Psalm 40. And there's a difference. The difference being the statement about my ears. My ear you have opened. Whereas my ears you have opened. Whereas in Hebrews it says a body you have prepared for me. And that uh, has puzzled a lot of people and it bothers a lot of people. It doesn't bother me any if uh, the Holy Spirit who inspired the Old Testament also inspired the New Testament and then he's, he's free to, to adjust things as he sees fit. He's also free to make a theological adaptation of things. And I think that's what's going on here in an interesting way. Because what does it mean to open your ears anyway? It means to open the ears. Is that the ready ear of a disciple? Is that the ear of someone that's listening to the Word of God? Or is it the reference to what happens when a voluntary bondservant decides to remain a permanent servant on behalf of somebody else? 
And I think that's what we have going on here. In fact, I'm going to list that for you on this next point. My ears you have opened becomes a body you have prepared in a marvelous adaptation of David's statement by the Lord. So he changes that. Remember, it's the statement God, Jesus makes when he comes into the world. So he's adapting David's statement. And when he adapts David's statement, he says, a body you have prepared for me. And because he's going forth into the, the body of the, of the baby, of the, of the womb in, uh, in, in Mary's womb. So he's adapting David's statement. And even David's statement itself needs work. Even David's statement itself needs to be carefully examined. Because as you go from verse 6 to verse 7, you have this interruption of, then I said. Well, what's that doing in there? So when David is speaking, is he speaking on his own behalf? He seems to be speaking in the first person in these early verses. He says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. So it seems to be in the first person. But then he switches to the third person in the verse 4. How blessed is the man who has made the Lord his trust. So he's it's still David speaking, but he switches from the first person to the third person. And then, uh, but he's back to the first person again in verse 5. When he says, uh, if I could declare and speak of them, they would be too numerous to count. So he's back to his own perspective again in verse 5. Sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired. My ears you have opened. That's a first person perspective. David is speaking on his own behalf as one that's following the Lord, serving him, walking by faith with opened ears, either ears to hear or pierced with the all and, and claimed as a bondservant of the Lord. That's how I prefer to read this. Then I said, then I said, and that becomes disjunctive. That becomes a break. And it, it's setting apart the, the really the, the verse six uh, becomes the basis for verse seven. And um, in case you think I'm making a big deal out of this, when I get back to Hebrews 10, you're going to see that the author of Hebrews did the same thing. He makes a big deal out of it as well. Okay. So we have here is a marvelous adaptation of David's statement by the Lord for his quotation and application in light of all Old Testament prophecy. All right, so let's start with some of this. What happens when you open the ears? What does this even mean? Deuteronomy 15, 17. We get uh, ear piercings today and in our modern world they're just decorative and they're, some of them are kind of gruesome um, when they stretch out the earlobes, do some things. They can be attractive. I don't have any issues with jewelry. All right, Deuteronomy 15. But in the ancient world, and what we're talking about here with respect to a slave... We have a description here of what happens when a slave decides he doesn't want his freedom. We, we talked about this last week in the Proverbs class, actually, um, about being gracious to the poor. Remember, we were dealing with that in Proverbs 17. Deuteronomy 15, 12 says, If your kinsman, a Hebrew man or woman, is sold to you, then he shall serve you six years. But in the seventh year, you shall set him free. And when you set him free, you shall not send him away empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally. It's a great verse for learning how to be a liberal. All right? Be a liberal. But if you're going to be a liberal, 
Read the rest of the verse. Furnish him liberally from your flock, from your threshing floor, from your wine vat. (laughs) Give to him as the Lord your God has blessed you. So if you want to be a liberal, be the biggest liberal you want, but give away all your stuff. Don't steal somebody else's stuff to give to this guy. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Extra credit, there's no charge for any of that. That's bonus. And you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this today. And it shall come about if he says to you, now here's, this is interesting, all right? If he says to you, I will not go out from you, because he loves you and your household, since he fares well with you, he may voluntarily choose to remain a slave. He could be free, but views it better that a slave in this Lord's house is better than being free outside, being free in his own house or being free apart from this man's house. And that boggles people's minds too. They think, ooh, wait a minute, slavery is evil, always evil, absolute. It never has a good application. Well, this seems to show otherwise because he has the access to this Lord. And clearly the metaphor, of course, applies to us as bond slaves of God and Jesus as a bond slave of the Father. So if he says to you, I will not go out from you because he loves you and your household since he fares well with you, then you shall take an awl and pierce it through his ear into the door. And this is where a lot of... that hurt? Okay. Uh, Yeah, not every ear piercing is sterile at the mall. All right, there's... Sometimes it happens in the barracks. That's a whole different story. All right. Take an awl. Now, is this the the backdrop for my ears you have opened? Is this the theological backdrop? Is this what David is saying when he says that he is Yahweh's bondservant? That he's in the house of God and he never wants to leave the house of God? All right, I, I believe so. And so um, he shall be your servant forever and you shall do likewise to your maidservant. All right, so there's the backdrop for that. But then there's also just the uh, idiom of opening the ears, which is inclining the ears, which is having a ready ear, being eager to hear. And that's often thought of as being the basis for my ears you have opened. Uh, Passages such as Isaiah 50. This may also be, the problem with this is while Isaiah 50 might be in Jesus' mind, it can't be in David's mind. It can't be in David's mind when he writes Psalm 40 because Isaiah hasn't been written yet. I think people lose sight of that. But to have an opened ear, it is an opened ear reference. Uh, In verse 4 and verse 5, the Lord God has given me the tongue of disciples that I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word. And Isaiah was a communicator, David was a communicator, Jesus is a communicator. We want to speak to uh, minister to those that we serve. You can't be a communicator unless you're first a listener. You cannot teach the Word of God unless you're a student of the Word of God and you have a ready ear. So to have the tongue of disciples, to sustain the weary one with the Word, He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. Isn't that beautiful? You have the ear to hear 
Now you can speak. And then verse 5, the Lord God has opened my ear and I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. I think a lot of believers, they enjoy the Bible. They, uh, they're interested in biblical things. They learn things. And, and, and what they learn is interesting as far as it goes until <laughs> the commands start coming in and uh, the race that's set before you seems to have some difficulties, seems to have some obstacles. It seems to be not pleasant. And then you've got a real volitional gut check, don't you? Am I going to obey? Am I going to go forth? I mean, Jesus had to grow and learn these things. He's learning from his mom and dad. He's learning from his rabbi. He's learning the Torah. He's learning the Bible. And he's learning about the Christ. And then it's revealed to him that he is the Christ. <laughs> and he's learning. And then he learns that the Christ is going to die. At what point do you say, uh, I mean, this is more than just academic learning. It, there is obedience that's expected. I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. And like I say, Jesus may have had that in his thinking, but he was quoting David, and David did not have this in his thinking. Isaiah wasn't written yet when David um, wrote Psalm 40. Likewise with Jeremiah 7. Jeremiah wasn't written yet. And yet... Prophetically, it contains the very same principles we're looking at. To have opened ears, open ears that are quick to listen and are willing to obey. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. This is Jeremiah 7, 21. <clears throat> Add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat flesh. For I did not speak to your fathers or command them in the, in the day I brought them from the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. But this is what I commanded them, saying, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you will be my people, and you will walk in all the way which I commanded you, that I may be well with you. Obeying is better than sacrifice. And on the day that he gave them all those sacrifices, what was he really saying? Obey. Obey me. The, the, the practice of following the sacrifices was just simply the, the ex exhibit of the obedience. That Israel was a covenant nation in obedience to the Lord God. Therefore, they, they observed the, the feasts, they did the sacrifices, they followed the, the prescripts of Mosaic law. The point wasn't follow the law, the point was obey. Obey. All right, and so this is what Jesus is going to do. Jesus is going to come and offer himself as the pinnacle of obedience. He's going to offer himself as the fulfillment of everything the shadow doctrine was pointing to. And so he does this. And then he says, it is written. It is written. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me. It is written. David knew it. Jesus knows it. When you say it is written... What a powerful statement. Particularly when a king had to write it out for himself with his own hand. When David said, behold, in the scroll it is written of me, you realize that when he became king, he had to write out his own copy of the law. You think that makes a difference? You don't just go out to Lifeway and pick up your new Bible. You, uh, you have to write it for yourself. What, a, what an exercise. 
What a uh, valuable aid for Scripture memory. What a uh, privilege to have your own handwritten, you know, people today are talking about, well, Thomas Jefferson's Bible. Are you kidding me? He didn't write that out himself. (laughs) David, every king, every Old Testament king, when they became king, they had to write their own Scriptures, make a copy for themselves. And so you have these it is written declarations. Let's start with Deuteronomy and then I'll back up. Because the it is written statement is a, is a submission to the will of God and a willingness to obey the Scriptures. All right, Deuteronomy. It shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. You can't just go home and say you did it. You're going <laughs> to, you're going to, you know, you're going to do it right there in front of him. It shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left so that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. And you wonder, how long did they practice this? How many kings did it take before this stopped being practiced? I mean, at some point, the law itself disappeared, and they discovered it, you know, in the days of Josiah. They found a copy. Ooh, what is this? You know, wow, where, where did that thing go? You would think if each successive king had been making their own copy from reign to reign to reign, that they would have never lost track of the law the way that they did. But what a practice. And so here's a king who can rightly say, it is written, and I wrote it. <laughs> okay, well, God wrote it, but I copied it in my own hand. When he says, it is written, and King David can say in the scroll of the book, it is written of me, it gets very personal. When you're you know, king of Israel and you're reading and the, the law is talking about, oh, the king of Israel, I guess I've, I've got expectations. These are commands for me. You know, I don't know about you. I, I've got a, an idea. What if we forced every member of Congress, when they take office, to write their own copy of the Constitution? <laughs> when, all right, I like it. I like the idea. All right, it is written. And so now Jesus quotes it. He says, It is written. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me. Because fundamentally, all of Scripture is about Jesus. He, uh, all the fulfilled prophecies of the Old Testament are about Jesus. You search the Scriptures, these are what speak of me. In all three times that he was tempted by Satan, he said, it is written. It is written. Do you want to pass a temptation? Are you struggling with something right now in your life? Well then, start your next sentence with, it is written. Okay? And find a passage of Scripture that addresses what you're struggling with and then commit to obeying what the Word of God says. And you'll find it's a remarkable method. So the tempter tempts him and says, if you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. It is written. Same thing with the second temptation. It is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And that's important because in that temptation... Satan had actually thrown a Bible verse at him. So if someone's going to throw a Bible verse at you, 
but they're twisting it and they're leaving something out, okay, then you've got to be able to come right back with a verse of your own. No, wait, it's also written, okay? And now you're going to harmonize the Scripture so that everything is true because it is written. And then bow down and worship me. He says, get behind me, Satan. Go, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So the, to me, this is powerful. To me, this is my, my, my very all-time favorite uh, perfect passive is it is finished, right? Tetelestai, it is finished. My second favorite perfect passive is this one right here. It is written. It is written. Because the Bible stands. The Word of God has gone forth. It is written. So if it is written, then this is what we're going to do. Matthew 26, it is written. And um, the disciples didn't like this. But he said, uh, the Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. He would have been good for that man if he had not been born. And the disciples are actually in disagreement with this. They, they say, no, Lord, this shouldn't, far be it from thee. This should never happen to you. What are they really saying? It has been written, you want God to be a liar? You want Scripture to be unfulfilled? You're calling Jesus a liar? He said, uh, strike down the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered. And the, and the disciples were, oh, no, 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 we're not going to run. Well, it, it was written. It either has to be fulfilled or God's a liar. It is written. Down to verse 31 of the same chapter here. Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. It comes from Zechariah. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Because what else has been written? <laughs> it's also been written that, that the Lord would not abandon His Holy One to Sheol. He would not suffer decay. He would be resurrected. But Peter said to him, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. You know how blasphemous that is? You know how arrogant that is? How wrong that is? It's like a believer saying, well, I don't care what the Bible says. This is what I want to see happen. Well, wait a minute. <laughs> We're not free to rewrite what God wrote. And so we have this. And so when he comes into the world, he says, in the scroll of the book, it is written of me. Behold, I come to do your will. So David may have had his own personal application, but it was really about Jesus. And he cites that when he comes into the world. I mean, he was quoting scripture all over the place. When he's hanging on the cross, he's, he's quoting Psalm 22. Jesus was constantly citing scripture, which is why, hopefully, we're going to get the reprints of the Colossians scripture memory material, and we're going to memorize scripture this summer. That uh, This congregation is going to go through the uh, scripture memory fellowship book on uh, Colossians. So we're getting ready to start a Colossians series anyway. And we're going to get to go through a scripture memory project together as families, as kids and adults. And, and uh, it'll be humbling because the kids will do better than we do. But we're going to get the word hidden in our heart. And uh, I think our Savior exhibits that here this morning. 
All right, then on to verses 8 and 9. And look what the author does here. He just said everything in verses 5, 6, and 7. But then look what he does. He restates it. After saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, he then makes a parenthetical editorial statement. He says, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, then he said, right? Remember that break in Psalm 40? Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will. And then he makes another parenthetical editorial statement. So the author of Hebrews here is actually using that that disjunctive break in Psalm 40 and he's keying on that to, to contrast the first statement with the second statement to demonstrate that there is in fact a progression. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will. And here's the editorial comment. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. He's he's breaking up the text the way the author, the way David did in, uh, in Psalm 40. He's making sure that we as readers don't miss that when he breaks it up by repeating it a second time and splitting those two statements, highlighting the then he said. All right, a couple things here. The author of Hebrews repeats the Psalm 40 passage, splitting the comments, the complete statement in two and stressing two separate points. And the publisher, our New American Standard publishers, they put the first in parentheses, which are offered according to the law. They, they chose not to put parentheses in verse 9, and they probably should have, or they should have just done whatever, to make these editorial comments similar. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. That's the Hebrews commentary on Psalm 40. Just as when, the, when it says, which are offered according to the law, that's an editorial comment on Psalm 40. Just a reminder of these things. So splitting the complete statement in two, why, why do that? Why take the point to um, highlight things that you think, well, what's the big deal? The Apostle Paul does that when he talks about seed instead of seeds in Galatians. He says, you know what? The S makes a difference. Seeds plural or seed singular. And uh, he said, you know what? Seed singular is the person, Jesus Christ. And that becomes theologically significant. We pay attention to these details for a reason. And the author of Hebrews is paying attention to these details for a reason. He's breaking these two statements up because Psalm 40 breaks them up with that then I said statement. Then I said, behold, I come to do your will. And this is called the consummation of the ages when the word becomes flesh and when God himself enters into the human experience in time and walks this earth doing the will of God the Father having victory whereas the first Adam had failure. There's a lot to this. All right. Behold, I come to do your will. You realize if animals, if, uh, if, if the animal ritual could please God, it would have, but it didn't, right? If it could make the worshipers perfect, it would have, but it didn't. He says, I have taken no pleasure 
sacrifices for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them. Right? This is Mother's Day. Don't we want to do things that bring pleasure to our mothers? <laughs> do things on Father's Day, we do things that bring pleasure to our fathers. You don't sit around in the days leading up to Mother's Day and think, now what does mom really hate? Let me make sure I do extra doses of that. No. So animal ritual. God takes no pleasure in the animal ritual. But when his son comes into the world, what's the statement? Behold my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. There is pleasure in the son whereas there's no pleasure in the the blood of bulls, rams, and goats. Animal ritual under law produced no pleasure, no satisfaction, no propitiation. Pleasing God. You want to please God? Requires a focused study on what he takes no pleasure in. Part of learning what pleases him, trying to learn what pleases the Lord, Colossians 1.10. Part of learning what pleases the Lord is also learning what doesn't please the Lord. What is it that gives him no pleasure? What is it that stinks in his nostrils? And that's useful as well. Pleasing God requires a focused study on what he takes no pleasure in. Isaiah 1.11, Ezekiel 18, Ezekiel 33. There's more. There's a number of passages. It's pretty easy to tell what pleases him and doesn't please him. And then uh, if you think that he's changed lately, that he's modified his standards to conform with our world's modified standards, because we have a culture that uh, approves of an awful lot of things that God has never approved of, well, you recognize God doesn't change. And his word is eternal. And the things that he's not pleased with, if he wasn't pleased with them back then, why do you think he's pleased with them now? You better show me a verse. Okay? I can, uh, we've, got, we've got biblical sanction to, uh, to replace the, the, uh, uh, the food limitations. Right? I can eat bacon today. I can eat pork chops today. And that doesn't mean that Leviticus is old-fashioned and we can ignore it. That means the New Testament specifically freed us from the, the, the bacon and pork and unclean animal issue, okay? Shrimp and other seafood, if you guys like that stuff, right? We have Scripture freeing us from those limitations, but show me the Scripture that says all of this modern fornication stuff is good to go now. It's not there, okay? Those things that still displease God or that did back then, they still do now. Those standards have not been released or uh, we don't have freedom in Christ to fornicate the way we have freedom in Christ to eat bacon. And yet, you've probably met the same people I've met that, that think it's their winning argument to say, well, do you eat bacon? How is that relevant to homosexual fornication or heterosexual fornication or premarital fornication or whatever other form of fornication you want to justify. All right. What else does not please God? Religion. Um, Going to church with uh, the wrong attitude. Okay. Isaiah 111. I mean, seriously, if you're only in church because it's Mother's Day and mom wants you here, what is that? (laughs) 
Yeah, God, he, he, he does some name calling in this chapter. In Isaiah 1.10, he says, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Okay? Now he's writing to priests in Jerusalem, but he calls them Sodom and Gomorrah. That, that's an attention getter. Okay? I mean, that communicates something right there. That's, that's where labels are useful. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings and rams and the fat of fed cattle. I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? And they thought, I'm sure, that they were very religious, that God was clearly very pleased with them because they could be more religious than anybody else around. And he said, no, I hate this. You're trampling. It's like mom saying you're tracking mud through my kitchen. Who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. See, the things that please him, he embraces and draws near. The things that are an abomination, he pushes away. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity in the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. Man, they, they just stink. Those aren't sweet, sweet smelling savers going up to the Father. He hates them. You know what else he doesn't take pleasure in? Disciplining his children. He does it because he has to. He does it because he's long suffering. But when he finally does do it, he doesn't take any pleasure in it. Ezekiel 18, he says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. That doesn't please him. When he executes judgment, he does so. He's slow to do so because he's slow to anger. He's abounding in loving kindness. He's very merciful. He's waiting to forgive. His preference actually is that that sinner gets saved. And then he can forgive the sin and take him to glory. But when he finally does apply the judgment, he takes no pleasure in the judgment. <clears throat> I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord God. Therefore, repent and live. Repeated again in Ezekiel 33. The issue is the discipline has a purpose and if it sparks the repentance then there you go. <clears throat> Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die O house of Israel. Notice how he just leaves it in their volitional court. <laughs> he says, this is on you and what you choose to do. So what pleases him? What doesn't please him? In Hebrews 10, we learn what pleases him, what doesn't please him. We've already seen verse 6. Later in the chapter, it comes back. His pleasure. In Hebrews 10, 6, it's sacrifices. In verse 38, My righteous one shall live by faith, but if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Well, that gets personal. Okay? That's a warning. We'll get there. You and I are going to deal with that because that's, that's him dealing with us. 
Are we going to walk by faith and stand before Him as righteous ones? Or are we going to shrink back? Say, Jesus didn't shrink back, why are we shrinking back? All right. So there's a warning, we'll deal with that. You know, the God-man's continuous obedience prompted God the Father's infinite and eternal good pleasure, satisfaction, and propitiation. When When you're studying the good pleasure of God, you're studying His satisfaction. And that's in Jesus. That's in Jesus. The only way that that he sat in Jesus, you know, is the propitiation for our sins, not ours only, but also the entire world. And so we have these principles here. Psalm 2 7, behold, my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Today I have begotten you. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. The only begotten. There were other angels were called sons of God, but they weren't begotten sons of God. They were created sons of God. Jesus was the begotten Son of God. In Psalm 2-7 and Proverbs 8-30, the birthing of of, uh, Jesus' begotten humanity. Proverbs 8-30. Are we familiar with these? Hope so. We're we're headed for communion. I always run out of time on communion Sunday. The, um, The good pleasure of the Father. To which of the angels did He ever say, sit at my right hand? Well, did any of those angels bring him the good pleasure that God the Son brings him? No. This is what's unique. His continuous obedience prompted the Father's infinite and eternal good pleasure, his eternal satisfaction, his infinite propitiation. All right. How many of these do we want to look at? <clears throat> We, uh, let me grab these real quick. Psalm 2 7. <clears throat> it's almost like we're reading current events. The nations are in an uproar and people are devising a vain thing. And uh, they don't like the Lord, they don't like his authority. God's in heaven laughing. All right. Verse 6, as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. This psalm is millennial. It's emphasizing the reign of Jesus Christ installed, seated in office. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. What day is that? that December 25th? (laughs) Is that January 14th? What day is that? What day? When he says, today I have begotten you. What day is that? I want to know. I want to, I want to commemorate. I want to have a cake and blow out candles every year. I want to, what day is this birthday? Is this the manger in Bethlehem? What is this? Uh-uh. That's right. I have begotten you. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. It is the, the commencement of his hypostatic union. It's the commencement of his true humanity. This is when God the Son becomes both undiminished deity and true humanity united forever in one person. Prior to this, you have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, co-equal, co-eternal, co-glorious, infinitely God. But God the Son became a man, the God-man. The humanity of Christ is not eternal. If you've ever met anybody that tries to convince you that the humanity was also eternal, They've got a tough burden of proof to overcome because the Bible can't sustain that. 
And if, if His humanity was also eternal, that meant He had an eternal attribute the Father and the Holy Spirit didn't have. <clears throat> That's a complete uh, rejection of Trinity and, and everything else. Humanity is not eternal. Humanity had a beginning. Okay? And, the, and what's, what's glorious is some people, most people, without thinking about it, it's just normal to think that, well, He became a man when He became, when he was born in Bethlehem. Right? He became a man when, when Mary birthed him in the manger. That's when he became a man. No, that's when he received a body. Because it says, a body you have prepared for me. But he already had a human spirit. He already had a human soul spirit. When did he get that? Today I have begotten thee. When the Father begat the human nature of Jesus Christ. And he accepted that. All right. And so this today that's mentioned in Psalm 2 doesn't tell us what today it is. It's actually the very first today ever. It's the alpha moment of time. It's the moment that begins, that bridges eternity past with the temporal present. How do I know that? Because Proverbs 8 tells us that. Proverbs 8 tells us that in verses 22 and following. The Lord begat me, possessed me, acquired me, birthed me at the beginning of His way before His works of old. From everlasting I was established. See, this is the bridge. Everlasting is eternity past. But from this moment, we now start marking sequence of things in time. Because now something exists that hasn't existed for all eternity. The humanity of our Savior. From everlasting I was established, from the beginning, from the earliest times of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water. Before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was birthed. Brought forth. This is when God the Father begat the human nature of God the Son, of Jesus Christ. And it's before Genesis 1-2. It's before anything else that was created. When He had not yet made the earth and the fields. He was here before all of that. As the God-man. Before all of that. Verse 30 says, I was beside Him as a master workman. I was daily His delight. He's always been the delight of the Father. Daily His delight. Playing always before Him. You ever watch your child playing in front of you? Building a stack of bricks, knocking them over, building another stack of bricks? Okay? God the Father says that His Son was playing before Him and the bricks He was playing with was the universe. He created the universe at the Father's design. All right, Isaiah 42.1. The Beloved Son, the, the Eternally Begotten One, the Son in whom He's well pleased, the servant in whom He's well pleased. Well, if He's a Son, why does He have to become a servant? Because that pleases the Father. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon Him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise His voice nor make His voice heard in the street. A bruised reed He will not break. A dimly burning wick He will not extinguish. 
Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of this. And we can prove this. We get it quoted in Matthew 3 and Matthew 17 and John 4, John 5. Look at the Son who is serving the Father as a beloved Son, as a faithful servant, as one who brings Him pleasure in all things. Bringing Him pleasure in all things. I know we've got to go to communion here in a minute, but let me just real quickly... I don't mind doing this because it's a preview for communion itself as we spotlight our Savior. <clears throat> Matthew 3.17, of course, he's coming to, for baptism. And after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. Behold, the heavens were open. He saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting upon him. Isaiah said he was going to send the Spirit, and here it comes. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Always has been, always will be. The transfiguration. And Peter's opening his mouth and sticking two feet in there. And, and the Lord says, Peter, shut up and listen. This is my beloved Son. <laughs> and so... Uh, yeah, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good to be here. If you would wish, I'll make three tabernacles here. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Where'd that dumb idea come from? While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. When you go to the Gospel of John, you see over and over again, the son who is here to please the Father. And He pleases the Father every step of the way. He pleases the Father in His kenosis. He, he pleases the Father in His earthly walk. He pleases the Father in every miracle He does. And all the teaching He gives is not His own. It's His Father's teaching. And even to the point of death, even death on the cross. You know, He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But He takes infinite pleasure in the death of the righteous one on our behalf. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the teaching you're giving us in Hebrews. And David wrote what he wrote in Psalm 40 and it became Jesus' declaration as he entered into the world. Behold, in the scroll of the book it is written of me, I come to do your will. And the beloved Son in whom you're well pleased, the beloved Son that you begat before the foundation of the world, he came to do your will. He took away the first in order to establish the second. Father, there's important principles in this chapter, and I thank you that the author of Hebrews slows down and delineates each point in the, in the careful way that he does. I pray that we would be careful in our study as well, that we don't misapply what's been given to us. I thank you for your son. I thank you for his obedience. I thank you for the word of God that teaches us these things. That, Father, we can learn these verses. We can hide them in our heart. We can memorize them. I do pray for our upcoming summer and the, the um, project we hope to engage in, Father. Scripture Memory Fellowship is actually the, the, the book we want to do is out of print, but they're going to put it back into print and, uh, and support our, our project here. And I thank you for that, Father. There's some details to work out. We leave that with you, Father. Work those out in your timing for your good pleasure. Uh, provide not only for us here in this congregation, but 
once uh, Scripture Memory Fellowship gets it back in print, then they can make it available around the country and around the world. And so I thank you for Jim and Susan Wojcik and, and their ministry there. In all things, Father, uh, make use of your word, hide it in our hearts, that we might live it out for the glory of your Son. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.